Hello, and welcome to The Search. I'm Shahe Jurgen. This program is dedicated to expository Bible study. Our aim is to articulate what the scriptures say, what they mean, and how they apply to our lives today. We believe that faithfulness to Christ is the relentless pursuit of His will, both to know it and to do it, and it's our aim to help as many people as we can to better understand the Bible, that we might all grow together in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. We are searching for truth. Now, one of the keys to better Bible study is understanding the whole story of the Bible. See, each book of the Bible stands alone as one literary unit, but those who compiled the Bible into its final form understood that each one of those standalone units also contributes to the overall biblical narrative about God and his work in history. Today, we're launching a new series all about the Bible story. These lessons will trace God's work from Genesis to Revelation as we consider significant events and characters in their proper setting. This is Biblical History, the story of God's work through the ages. Today, we're going to begin with Lesson 1, Creation and the Fall. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. These immortal words establish the most basic assertion of the Bible and set the stage for everything which follows. The Bible recounts the work of God. It was written by people who had personally encountered the Lord and witnessed his marvelous works. The writers of Scripture saw the Red Sea split, God's presence cover Mount Sinai and fill the tabernacle, and the walls of Jericho crumble to dust. They were there when the armies of the Philistines scattered, fearsome giants died on the battlefield, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers mysteriously perished in the night, and Israel was restored after 70 years in Babylonian captivity. They witnessed Jesus, who restored sight to the blind, cleansed lepers of their dreaded skin disease, and banished evil spirits from those held in bondage by their dark power. They saw Jesus walk on water, calm violent storms, feed thousands of hungry people with a few fish and pieces of bread, and most amazingly of all, they saw him risen from the dead three days after being publicly executed on a Roman cross. For the Bible writers, their encounters with the Creator God inspired them to follow the Lord and document his work throughout history. These were not myths they relayed from bygone ages. These were real events, many of which happened in their lifetime right in front of their eyes. The first man in history to write about the God of heaven and earth was Moses. The upbringing and life of Moses is documented in four biblical books, which he wrote, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. However, there's a fifth book written by Moses, which records events which preceded his birth, and that is the book of Genesis. Genesis is the most foundational book of the Bible because it establishes key biblical characters and themes. It reveals the most important person and character of the whole Bible, that is God himself. Genesis teaches that God is powerful, wise, and holy. He has the ability to create a vast universe. He has the forethought to plan its intricate parts to work in exactly the way he desires. There's a distinction between God, who is high and lifted up in the heavens, and the earth with its living creatures. 
Yes, from time to time, God condescends and comes down to earth. In fact, it's his desire to come down onto the earth to dwell among his creation. So while Genesis teaches that God is a being that transcends the boundaries and rules that cover the natural world, his desire is still to dwell among his creation. Thus, when Moses wrote, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1.1, he wasn't trying to prove God's existence. He was simply stating a truth he had always understood. The God who had delivered Moses and the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage was the same God who crafted the universe, who gave it light, who filled earth with plants and animals, who formed man out of the dust of the earth, then woman from man's side. Genesis 1 documents the act of creation, and no one knows for certain how Moses learned this information. Perhaps God recounted it to him while the two spoke together. The Bible does say that no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, Deuteronomy 34 and verse 10. But it's also possible that Moses learned about creation through oral tradition. You see, before reading and writing were as common as they are today, many ancient cultures had highly developed systems to pass down information through oral traditions. In fact, there are a few cultures who still practice this today, where tribal elders safeguard the community's most cherished stories and hand them down from one generation to the next, often memorized word for word. The creation account of Genesis 1 describes God as speaking the universe into existence over a period of six days. God said, let there be light, and there was light. He separated light from darkness, day from night. That's the first day. Second, God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water, creating the atmosphere with its water-filled clouds above from the swirling waters of chaos below. Then on the third day, God brought dry ground up out of that water and he covered it with plants and trees. Day four, God perfectly arranged the heavenly bodies to mark sacred times and days and years. He assigned earth's two great lights, the sun to shine in the day and the moon to illuminate the darkness of night. On the fifth day, God filled the water below with living creatures and the air above with birds. And then on the sixth day, God commanded the land to produce the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals to cover the land. Now, if you look at the symmetry of these six days, you'll notice that it's convenient to pair them into two groups of three. In fact, that's how Moses designed the flow. Days one and four correspond to issues relating to what we think of as outer space. Days two and five uh, designate the things that are in the sky above and in the waters below. And then days three and six correspond to things that are made on the land, the land itself, all the vegetation, and then all the animals that fill that land with life. But on the sixth day, God also reserved one more amazing creature to make at the very end. We read about this creature in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. 
male and female, he created them. After every creative act, God saw that it was good. But after he made mankind in his own image, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Genesis 1.31. See, humans were created in the likeness of God, making them distinct from all other created beings. James Smith writes, Man is different from and superior to the animals, in that he alone is made in the image and likeness of God. This is the only place in the Old Testament where these two terms are used in conjunction with one another. The combination of terms refers to man's intellectual, spiritual, volitional, and ethical capacity. In short, the combination image and likeness refers to all that sets man apart from the animal kingdom. Now, in addition to being made in God's image and likeness, humans were given a special task. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule. God then blessed the man and the woman and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Humans were given the solemn task of ruling over the earth. They were elevated to the right hand of God to rule over creation with him. God is the creator king, humans his created vice-regents, who were tasked with the job of filling the earth with the knowledge and glory of God. So the humans were made to be like God in order that they might represent him here on the earth. They were his image bearers in that when people uh, and the creation looked upon the humans, it's as if they were looking upon God. This is one of the reasons why God always prohibited the manufacturing of idols. Wood and stone, they can't represent the living God, the creator of heaven and earth. Plus, God's already put something on the earth to represent him, and that is humanity. When the humans are doing what God has assigned for them to do, they are bearing his image right here on the earth. Now, there are two names or really titles attributed to God in the first two chapters of Genesis. The first that's used in Genesis 1 is the Hebrew word Elohim. And this word basically means mighty ones. It can be used to describe other spiritual beings, like we think of angels. Sometimes it's even used to describe the false gods that were worshipped by pagans. But most of the time, this word refers to the powerful God, the God behind the creation. The second word that's found in Genesis 2 uh, for God is represented in four letters. In English, it would be Y-H-W-H, and it's often pronounced Yahweh, even though we're not really certain about that pronunciation because the ancient Jews wouldn't actually speak the name of God. So the sacred name, sometimes referred to as the Tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, this is a much more intimate personal identification for God. And it, it comes from the statement that God made to Moses at the burning bush, I am who I am, Exodus 3 and verse 14. We'll talk more about the name later in a future study. The reason Genesis 2 gives us this new name for God 
is because Genesis 2 looks at creation from a very different vantage point. Genesis 1 is all about the grandness and power of the creator God Elohim and his image bearers who are made in his likeness to represent him on the earth. But Genesis 2 reveals that this powerful creator also loves, cares for, and protects his creation. His desire is to have a relationship that is intimate with his image bearers. His desire is that he would dwell on the earth to be in communion with the humans he has made so that they might serve in his presence, bask in his glory, and even worship him to serve in his sacred presence. Genesis 2 begins by telling us that God rested on the seventh day. And really, these first few verses of Genesis 2 are a carryover from Genesis 1. Now, when it says that God rested, doesn't mean, of course, that he was tired. Rather, that God models a biblical theme that work is followed by rest. Generations later, Moses would establish the Sabbath day, which followed God's pattern of working for six days and resting on the seventh. In fact, the New Testament even uses this theme to describe life here on earth as a time of work, followed by a glorious eternal rest that the save the saving God has provided for his people. Genesis 2 also describes a perfect garden paradise called the Garden of Eden. Now, Eden was a place that was well-watered, it was luscious and teeming with trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food, Genesis 2.9 says. Eden really is described for us in ancient terminology as a sacred space. This was more like a temple than just a garden. It was a place where God and the humans could dwell together in perfect harmony. Really, you should think of Eden as sort of a a, a heaven-earth intersection point. Later, this would be reflected in the tabernacle and the Jerusalem temple, where God could come down into these spaces, and heaven and earth sort of overlapped. It was a place where God could meet with the humans. That's what Eden was supposed to be, a heaven-earth intersection point where God and the humans could be together. Now, in Genesis 2.15, it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And this verse is essential. See, God was a being who worked And so man in his image would also be a being who worked. And the work that is described is the same work that's going to be described later of the Levitical priest who work and take care of the tabernacle. Again, accentuating the idea that Eden was a garden temple. Genesis 2 also elaborates on how the first pair were created. The Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being, Genesis 2 and verse 7. A fact that's lost in our English versions is the close relationship between the Hebrew words for Adam, man, which we've made into sort of a proper name, Adam, and ground, Adama. 
And so literally, Adam, the first man, is being described as the dirt man, the ground man. And God fashions this dirt like a potter takes some clay. And it's only when God's breath comes into it that it becomes a living being. Uh, So uh, here we have the creation of the man. But it's soon recognized by God that Adam's aloneness was not good. In fact, it's the first time the expression not good can be found here in the Bible. So we read on that the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. Adam and Eve were joined together by God himself. A man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. This is all recorded in Genesis 2, 21 through 24. Now, Genesis 2 also reveals that God is like a father. And this father figure, as all fathers are wont to do, desires to take care of his children. Though Adam and Eve were created as fully grown adults, they possessed, we might think of as kind of a a childlike innocence because they had never known or experienced evil. This innocence is physically manifested in the fact that Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame, Genesis 2, 25. So to ensure that their holiness, their innocence remain intact, God gave them a special prohibition. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. By the way, sometimes I hear people say, you know, God only ever gave one command to Adam and Eve, and they couldn't just keep that one command. That's not exactly true. God gave Adam and Eve a number of commands like be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, take care of the garden temple. He only gave them one prohibition, it seems, and that prohibition, of course, was do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's because God says that when you do that, you will certainly or surely die. Now, obviously, the last thing in the world God wanted was for his image bearers to die. So he sternly warned them of the consequences of eating from this forbidden tree. Tragically, of course, Genesis 3 opens up with what we think of as the account of the fall. It's often called the fall because it marks the occasion when sin entered the world and humans fell from the holy presence of God. We're introduced here to a cunning, crafty serpent who approached Eve. Now, later biblical texts look back and identify this snake as a powerful spiritual being called Satan, whose name means adversary. And there's a lot of uncertainty about who Satan is or where he came from or why he was in the garden, but it seems that he may have been some sort of spiritual being who had previously served God but rebelled against the sovereign rule of the Lord. Satan's identity is mysterious, but his mission is well known. He is a deceiver whose wicked work is dedicated to overthrowing the faithfulness of the people of God. 
So the serpent approaches Eve with the lie that nothing bad will happen to her if she eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He even says that the reason God forbade the tree was that God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Genesis 3 and verse 5. Now, this is really important. God made the humans like him so that they could rule in his place, on his behalf, at his right hand. He made them to be the co-rulers of the earth, to fill it with more image bearers so that the earth would be covered with the knowledge and glory of God. That was the purpose for which they were created. But here, the serpent comes to say, no, 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 no. God doesn't want you to eat from this tree because he knows that if you do that, you will get another option than what God has designed you to accomplish. And that option will be to decide what is good and bad on your own terms, to be your own rulers, to, in this sense, become your own gods. Don't submit yourself to the will of your creator. Do what you want to do. And so the deception here was that uh, Eve was being beguiled into believing that God just wanted to hold them back from their true potential. God's just trying to keep you down. He's just trying to keep your boot on, keep his boot on your neck so that you can't accomplish your full potential. And of course, the deception worked. She took some of it and she ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate, Genesis 3 and verse 6. And thus, sin entered the world. Sin is the transgression of God's law. It is a, a willful act of rebellion against the Creator. It's knowing what is good and right and choosing to do evil and wrong. Instead, sin is lawlessness. It wasn't just that they ate a piece of fruit. It was that they rejected the reign of their creator, their maker, their God. And they said, we want to be our own gods. We want to make our own rules. Now, after Adam and Eve sinned, the disgrace of their actions was physically manifested in bodily shame. They realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves, says verse 7. God came to Eden and confronted the pair. Of course, tried to blame others. They deflected from the seriousness of their actions, but God knew better. He dispensed curses upon them. The woman would now endure pain and difficulty in childbearing. The man would struggle to provide food for his family. Even their marriage would know hardship now that jealousy and strife were in the world. Surprisingly, however, one thing the serpent said was true. See, the serpent said that they would not die the day they ate the forbidden fruit. And in fact, they didn't. Yes, God cursed them. He banished them from his presence. He drove them out from the Garden of Eden. He removed their access from the Tree of Life, but he didn't kill them right then and there. And I think that this sets up a very important biblical theme that will play a major role throughout the rest of the Bible story. And that's the theme of the mercy of God. See, mercy is the removal of a guilty person's punishment. 
When someone commits a crime that's proven in a courtroom, the guilty criminal might plead with the judge for mercy to reduce the severity of the justly deserved sentence. God showed mercy towards Adam and Eve. The fig leaves they had spliced together to cover their shame were insufficient in shrouding their nakedness, so God did for them what they could not do on their own. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them, Genesis Genesis 3.21. God performed history's first animal sacrifice using the skin of a slain beast to cover humanity's sin. God's mercy, of course, was not only manifest in sparing Adam and Eve from death and covering their shame, it was also manifest in an announcement God made about the future. See, the Lord said that one day a descendant of Eve would crush the head of the snake. The snake would bite this man's heel, but in the end, Satan's head would be trampled. From the moment sin entered God's perfect world, the Lord began moving forward with a plan to remedy the curse. Humans rebelled. They disregarded their creator's will and broke God's law. But the Lord was prepared with a plan of his own to fix everything. Creation and the fall teach the following truths. And you'll see that throughout these studies, as we go from lesson to lesson, we'll try to make these five little observations at the end. Number one, God is a powerful creator and a loving, protective father. Number two, humans were made in God's image to rule the world at his side. Satan, the serpent, is a cunning adversary who wants to bring ruin to humanity. Number four, we learn that sin is rebellion against God, and it always brings terrible consequences into the world. And lastly, mercy is the removal of duly earned punishment, and it's at the heart of God's work in undoing the scourge of sin. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The psalmist celebrated creation with these words, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Psalm 33 verses 6 through 9. 